Hi, my name is Michael Bean, and you're listening to episode 21. Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit. A podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins, read by the author. For more information about this novel, please visit www.jchutchins.net. Hi, this is Kevin J. Anderson, the co-author of Hunters of Dune with Brian Herbert and my own The Saga of Seven Sons books, along with quite a few other Star Wars books and X-Files books and, and too many things to keep my bookshelf happy. So I'm here to, to introduce the story so far. In the last chapter, John stumbled across the Alaskan tundra, determined to reach the Rookman oil drilling camp. Once there, he searched for a radio with which to contact General Hill and the other Beta clones. John's search was cut short when two nept-charged soldiers emerged from the camp's radio shack. They began to chat. From his hiding place, John overheard important details about John Alpha's scheme. The Devlins confirmed that the Beta clones were being murdered in the order in which they were born. John also learned that the psyche of A.U. Rookman had been downloaded into his son's mind and that the oil tycoon was bankrolling Alpha's conspiracy. As the chapter came to a close, John's position was exposed when the driver of a fuel tanker stopped and spotted him. John shoved past the driver, scrambled into the rig, and put the vehicle in gear. The tanker roared down the muddy street. The Devlins began their pursuit. And now, we continue the story. Chapter 27 Secretary General Kozarov was starting to ramble again. Vice President Charles Kane wedged the telephone receiver between his shoulder and chin, half listening, resisting the urge to roll his eyes. He took a sip from the coffee mug an aide had delivered seconds ago. He grimaced. Admiral Brooks had commandeered the coffee pot again. Adding pennies for flavor was a Navy thing. Mmm-mm. Astastic. Kane offered a well-timed, I see to the Secretary General, and let his eyes wander around his spectacular surroundings. He was sitting in the emergency conference room of the Pentagon's NMCC, or National Military Command Center. The NMCC is the U.S. Armed Forces Nerve Center, the place where all military communications, intelligence, and coordination converge. Wars begin here. The peace is won here. It was also where most of the White House's power players were now camped, much to the quiet chagrin of the Pentagon folk. This wasn't the quaint Situation Room at 1600 Pennsylvania. This was the big show. The Bulldogs here weren't much for barking, Kane knew. They were all bite. Dozens of Pentagon employees strode past him, fetching printouts, folders, briefs. The emergency conference room, and certainly the rest of the NMCC beyond these walls, was filled with the steady hum of activity, professionalism, and purpose. A bird's-eye view of the emergency conference room, ECR to those in the know, would reveal a cavernous space about the size of a basketball court. Eight massive projection televisions dominated its front wall. Each screen was alight with maps and streaming, screaming data. One of the screens currently projected a map of Saudi Arabia. Much of the digitized landscape was covered in blinking red and orange blobs, denoting kill zones and areas saturated with radiation. 
Several feet from these jumbo screens was the fourteen-chaired conference table, the table at which Kane was sitting. Save for Kane and one other man, the table was currently empty. At its head sat Vincent Hale, President of the United States. He, too, was on the telephone. The President's loosened tie lay cockeyed across his chest. He had survived three press conferences today and had just returned from his address to the nation. Hale hunched over the table now, speaking low into the receiver. He had given orders to be left alone during this call. Hale's mouth was drawn into a tight frown. Kane knew who he was speaking to. It must be hard being president and speaking to someone more powerful than yourself, Kane thought. Humble pie probably never tasted so bitter. Huh, what's this? The UN Politico on Kane's phone was actually giving him some news he could use. Something about the European Union. Kane tuned in. All countries have agreed to come tomorrow, Secretary General Kozarov was saying. His Bulgarian accent brought a charming, inelegant cadence to the conversation. Excellent, Galine, excellent, Kane said. Thanks for securing their involvement. This emergency session would go nowhere without the EU. Well, we must be truly united as nations now, the Secretary General said. A mob mentality cannot be allowed at this meeting, Charles. We must be the example, not the lowest common denominator. Kane did roll his eyes this time. Kozarov kept talking. Leaders will be flying in from all over the globe, a great many with vengeance on their minds. I spoke to Tobinov hours ago. He still insists he knew nothing of the attack until the missiles were flying. Maybe, maybe not, Kane said, smiling slightly. You do not believe him, the president of Russia? It doesn't matter if I believe him or not, Kane replied. Launching those nukes was unforgivable. The Russians had better have one hell of an alibi if they're not to blame. But you're right, Galine. The world will be watching tomorrow. He paused for effect. We must be united. Yes, this is what I told the EU president. Madam President understands why the General Assembly is convening, but she was curious to know why tomorrow's meeting will not be held in Geneva. Kane sneered. Goddamn Europeans. Geneva isn't the world headquarters of the United Nations, he snapped. Tobinov has told me he will issue a temporary stand-down on all Russian nuclear divisions, Kozarov said. A gesture of goodwill and compliance. That's promising, Kane replied, nodding. But if Moscow didn't author this morning's attack, it won't matter. Missile hijacking terrorists don't care about white flags. Yes, yes, the Secretary General said. The OPEC countries are already screaming for sanctions, oil embargoes, quite loudly. Yes, I was briefed on that. Who can blame them? Saudi Arabia is their backyard. They want justice. But it isn't helping. Now the EU is screaming at OPEC because it wants that Russian oil. And the Chinese are consuming more gasoline than ever. They're rattling the saber as well. They need those barrels. We all need those barrels, Kane said. That's why tomorrow is so important, Galing. What's next? Who's next? It's too much for people to handle. They want to know we're in control. Kozarov sighed. <sighs> How have your calls been going? As well as expected. Kane said. Most of the South American member nations will be attending. China's the next big call. I think Hale will have to make that one. I'll contact President Chang now, the Secretary General said. Grease the wheels, as you would say. Perfect. And it was. And it was also time to let the man go, Kane knew. He had the information he needed. Kane felt the career politician in him rise to the surface. He went with it. Galen, thank you again for your assistance in spearheading this. He said. It was your idea, Charles. Just the seed. It's your voice as Secretary General that carries the true authority, the true message. 
Please know that myself, the President, and the people of the United States are deeply indebted to you. Something good will come from this. Thank you, Mr. Vice President, Kozarov said. You'll be hearing from me shortly after I speak to Chang. I look forward to it, and to tomorrow's session. Kozarov agreed and said goodbye. Kane hung up the phone. He brought the coffee mug to his lips, hiding his smile. The career politician in him thought the conversation had gone well. The John Alpha lurking behind Kane's eyes did, too. Very well, indeed. A.U. Rookman grinned merrily as he spoke into his phone. The capped teeth of Lionel Rookman did the work for him. His conversation was also going well. So very, very well. Yes, Mr. President, Rookman said. I agree. Open the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Ship as many barrels as you see fit. But I know, as my late father did, that the SPR won't last us very long. If it's our only source, it'll give us three months at the most. Rookman paused as President Hale spoke. He glanced across the den at his desks, the lovely Mira Sanja and her two pet devlins. I appreciate that, Mr. President, Rookman said. He lived a long and full life. We've put aside all funeral plans until this emergency has subsided. And contrary to what you may have heard, I am more than capable of filling his shoes. Rookman swallowed a laugh. I'm glad to have your confidence, sir. Another pause. The smile on Lionel Rookman's face transformed into a toothpaste commercial. The vice president's advice may be sound, he said, nodding knowingly at Sanja Alpha. There's no time for new studies or exploration. And running the risk of sounding cocky, he's right about Rookman Oil. We're the only company that's fleet-footed enough to expedite such a high level of crude in such a short turnaround. I can have a team up there in less than a week, if you press Congress for authorization, of course. The president asked a question. Conservatively? Fifty years worth. But by then, hydrogen cells will be thriving. You know our engineers have been working on them. Pardon me for being frank, Mr. President, but we can go it alone. We don't need OPEC anymore. I won't let the nation down, sir. You'll find me as tenacious and patriotic as my father was. We're practically the same man in that regard. Another moment passed. The president was on the ropes, had been led into a corner and wanted to escape. The leader of the free world was wrapping up. No, sir, thank you for your call, Rookman said. I assure you, Rookman Oil can meet any energy demand this administration asks of it, particularly if the refuge is opened. I can also assure you that my father passed on his very comprehensive files on the men and women who helped and hindered him throughout the years. Don't worry, Mr. President. With certain appropriations and contracts of exclusivity, I'm sure we can come to an arrangement that is satisfactory to everyone involved, especially you. Please contact me at your convenience. Rookman placed the telephone receiver into its cradle and cackled. He stood up and poured himself a bourbon from the room's mahogany minibar. Every penny, he said to Mira Sanja. You're worth every goddamn penny. He's gonna make the push. Anwar's mine. At the suggestion of me, well, the me in the White House, Sanja Alpha said. He'll be calling people on the hill. All tonight and tomorrow morning before his big date in New York. Rookman took a pull from the crystal glass. God damn, it's good to drink this stuff again. Most of the people Hale will call will be the same folks who've accepted my extremely generous contributions throughout the decades. The bases are loaded, the president makes the pitch, and you bat cleanup. 
You stack the deck well, Johnny. Sandra Alpha smiled. Even the tree huggers will cave, she said. We've seen how Congress gets in the face of crisis. They sang America the Beautiful on the steps of the Capitol the day after 9-11, for God's sakes, and then approved the train wreck Patriot Act without even reading it. Slack-jawed, obsequious sheep, all of them. A.U., you're the man people are going to turn to. The man with the plan, Rookman said. Your plan. Sanja stepped away from her Devlins and poured her own glass. Once you start pumping in Anwar, you can put the band-aid on Rookman oil operations in Iraq. You mean stop paying those towel heads to attack my pipelines? Rookman said. He took another sip and shook his head. It hurt to see that crude go up in flames. There was some serious short-term profit to be made there. True, Sanja replied. But the windfall wouldn't be as sweet or as all-encompassing. Anwar's been on your wish list for decades. With Iraqi production at a trickle, there was no other place Hill could easily look for a new oil supply. If you'd allowed your Iraq lines to pump like mad after the 2003 invasion, you wouldn't have been able to score the 1002 now. This way, you win twice. Exclusive pumping rights in Anwar. Exclusive profits from Iraq. Sometimes you gotta lose money to make money. More often you gotta spend money to make money, Rookman said. And you've been my most profitable outsource solution to date. Thank you. Sanja sipped at her drink. And thanks for lending us your little town to play with. Just before you got on the phone, I spoke to myself, the bona fide. Prophecy is no more, as is any evidence of our business relationship. Rookman snickered. <laughs> I knew buying that town would come in handy. Maybe the insurance company will give me something for what's left of it. And my camp in Alaska, did your bona fide give an update on that? Uh-huh, Sanja said. According to our devlins up there, your men are getting a little squirrely. They want to start working. Better still, a personal matter of mine has been settled, thanks to a bullet between the eyes. You lost one of your dump trucks in the process, I'm afraid. Shit. Well, I guess I'll just have to buy another one. With the billions you'll be raking in over the next forty years, you can afford it. Rookman lifted his glass. He winked at Sanja Alpha, who raised her own. You're goddamn right about that, son. The twin-engine Gulfstream G-550 screamed like a missile through the night sky. During the past 24 hours, it had hopscotched across the country on a meticulous timetable, visiting a dozen airstrips, its passengers spending an hour or so in each city, sowing seeds that would blossom into fiery chaos. Now the jet soared eastward, running toward the next sunrise. The private jet was owned by A.U. Rookman, but for the past year it had been on permanent loan to one John Michael Smith. The original. The bona fide. John Alpha leaned back in the cabin chair, its brown leather creaking around him like an old friend. The posh accommodations did little to comfort him. He drummed his fingers against the table before him, his manicured nails clicking against its wood. He stared at the cell phone that had just brought the troubling news. He absently rubbed his goatee, as he always did when he was deep in thought. He reflected. The plan was massive in scope, yet tightly wound. While there were now dozens of conspirators contributing to his plot, there were only four men, four minds truly connected to the cabal. Himself, Doug Devlin, A.U. Rookman, and the hacker Special K. The rest were extrapolations of two of those minds. The most important of these were the two remaining alphas, 
the nurse, and the vice president. Like Daniel Sheridan, Alpha's Russian self had committed suicide not long ago. The newly minted Devlins would have their time to shine soon enough. Until just now, until those two unsettling back-to-back phone conversations, the reports hailing from his network had been sterling. The Betas had been following the trail of kibble Alpha had left for them and had been dying nicely in the process. The Marine, the UN analyst, the profiler, the geneticist, all buried. Even Hill and Kleinman were gone, gassed to death by Alpha's mother self before her death at her own hands. The Seventh Sun compound was now a locked crypt. But this news, this was not expected. Alpha pulled a scarlet box of Dunhills from his sport coat pocket and plucked out a cigarette. He sparked a flame from his gold lighter and lit it, inhaling deeply. He continued to drum his fingers on the table. The sound was unnerving and soothing at the same time. Firstly, the Betas, Kilroy 2.0 and Thomas, had not yet landed at Rookman's airfield near Houston. This was disconcerting. The Devlin posted at Rookman's airstrip had just checked in, reporting their absence. The priest and the hacker should have made it to the site by now, Alpha knew, especially considering whatever transportation they were using. The jets Hale had acquired for the Betas were impressive indeed, something even Rookman's contacts at DARPA knew nothing about. This development didn't fit the pattern. The clones had arrived at Alpha's other sites well ahead of schedule. Their industriousness hadn't bothered him then. Alpha's plan was modified with no fuss. Beta 4 had simply met his demise before his appointed time. But this, this oversight, was not good. The clones weren't going to meet their end on Rookman's airstrip. Something was amiss. And then, the transmissions from Alaska. The first one was a blessing. Beta 3 was dead, the jet destroyed. Alpha had happily relayed this information to his Sanja self in Houston no more than 20 minutes ago. The second conversation, the one he had just ended, had been the curse. It was a panicked update, unscheduled. One of the Devlins at the Rookman camp told him that the seventh Beta had not frozen to death as planned. The wily abomination had survived and had walked to the camp, presumably to locate a radio. The four Devlins wanted instructions. Do we let him run? or do we kill him? Alpha had been livid. He had demanded answers, had cursed their incompetence, and had finally given the order, destroying the symmetry of his vendetta. Rogue beta clones doing as they pleased, he thought. Alpha did not like the realization of this. The plan did not accommodate such tomfoolery, which was why it had been designed to corral them into scenario after scenario, death trap after death trap. The Betas were to be so busy running from place to place, believing each step brought them closer to the Game Master, that they wouldn't realize that they were digging their own graves. But this? Damn them. He had to tell Special K. Alpha stood up, bringing the cigarette with him, strutting past row after row of armored Devlins, all different in appearance, men and women, sitting quietly and docile like the drones they were, to the rear of the plane. The hacker was sitting at his own table near the lavatory. The younger man's work surface was nearly covered by laptops and whirring external hard drives. I need to speak with you, Alpha said. Sit, I have some news for you too, Special K replied. He crinkled his beak-like nose at the smoldering Dunhill. Alpha chucked the smoke into the lab's toilet and sat down in the bench seat across from Special K. You used to smoke, you know, he said. That was a long time ago. The hacker's voice was different from the manic shrieking the clones had heard in the water tower. It was calculating now. Cold. What is it? Alpha frowned. Betas 5 and 6 haven't made it to the airstrip, 
he explained. And Seven is alive. He's creating his own breed of trouble up in the Arctic. I see, Special K said, typing. He glanced over the laptop screens, his cobalt-blue eyes staring into Alpha's. So what do you think they know? The ones in Texas? Nothing. Correction, if they don't show up at the next target, then they must know they've been played for fools. Special K considered this for a moment. The threat is minimal. With the geneticist exterminated and the town destroyed, there's no proof we were ever there. And since their support system at Seven Sun is gone, there's no way to learn anything else. In fact, the only clone who could provide any real assistance is already dead. We'll find them later and kill them. It lacks poetry, but then death often does. What's this about the seventh? The one you call the wild card? Alpha gave a slight smile. John's living up to the nickname. It seems he's stolen a big rig from the Wildcatter camp. I've ordered the remaining four Devlins up there to eliminate him. Special K began to speak, but Alpha raised his hand. Don't fear. I told them to keep the fight away from the site. We've already lost one of the dump trucks, apparently. A drop in the Rookman bucket, my friend. So Seven dies before the circle is completed. Soon you'll have hordes of Devlins out there searching for the surviving two. Disembowel them yourself, if you wish. I'm not concerned with the order of their deaths anymore. I'm afraid the betas in Texas may have realized the plot to kill them off. Their absence implies this. Special K raised his eyebrows. Together they are clever, passionate, protective. That much I learned during the charade at the water tower. That's my point, Alpha said. What if the betas in Texas are no longer in Texas? What if they're on their way to Alaska? A rescue mission. How quaint. I'm serious. So am I. Our devlins up there have been briefed on the plan. The clones will land, find Seven's dead body, and will be swiftly killed by our assassins. You worry far too much about them, John. They stole my life. The hacker smiled. Here, let me show you what today's travels have wrought. Special K spun around one of his laptops so Alpha could see the LCD screen. It was a digitized map of the United States. More than a dozen red icons blinked across its surface in Utah, Arkansas, North Dakota, Florida, Illinois, California, and others. It revealed the locations of the past day's travel, the locations of the new Devlins Alpha and Special K had created through Nepth Charge. Alpha knew what the blinking icons meant. Those Devlins were now active and armed. They've all located the bunkers, Alpha said, nodding. And the packages our first wave left five months ago. The Devlins will rip this country apart, Special K said. Nothing can stop them. We must thank Rookman for his instincts and investment opportunities. Who knew an oil man could be so vested in the military game? You did. It's one of the reasons we picked him. DARPA connections and deep pockets. Why, you can steal just about anything if you have those two assets. Our new Nepth-charged soldiers will certainly enjoy the devices we've left them, the younger man said. They certainly appreciated the vaporware. Vaporware is for skulking and subterfuge, Special K said, shaking his head. What these devlins have is much better. Red mercury, a primal scream, nuclear hellfire in the palm of your hand. will control the nation's fate. Control, Alpha. Finally, the control you seek. Alpha leaned toward the laptop screens. Pull up the information that Dania Alpha transmitted from Seventh Sun one more time. I want to review the Avaxis security. I want to be certain nothing goes wrong. Special K smiled. Of course. The Gulfstream G550 continued its eastward trek. They would pick up Mirasanja and Houston and then head northeast to their final destination.
It wouldn't be long now before the coup could begin in earnest. Just hours, really. Had it been discovered, a layman may have thought the underground bunker was a bomb shelter or a survivalist's cache, a place to wait out the end days with canned goods, drinking water, and a battery-powered radio. The bunker had not been discovered, however, and it was neither of those things. Five months ago, nearly a dozen Devlins had spent their three weeks of borrowed time building the bunker beneath this overgrown field in Heber Springs, Arkansas. The end result had been a thing of simplicity and brilliance given the circumstances. A four-foot-wide hole in the ground that plunged 20 feet down, opening to a 20-foot square chamber of darkness. The Devlins had covered the floor of this chamber with wooden planks, propped up the crumbling ceiling with support columns. The only way up or down was by a collapsible aluminum ladder. A saucer-shaped wooden door the size of a manhole cover, expertly camouflaged with grass and earth, protected the bunker from the world above. The Devlins had built a niche into one of the walls of this room, a place to accommodate the Kevlar-coated crate John Alpha had entrusted to them to hide all those months ago. After their work was done, the Devlins had crawled out of the earth, stowed the ladder in nearby underbrush, and marched to Greer's Ferry Dam. There they had written their cryptic backwards messages and died on the catwalk. Now, five months later, three new Devlins sat in the bunker's dank confines, flashlights in hand like treasure hunters, staring in awe at the crate they had just unearthed. It was all as it should be. They had been conjured to life just hours ago by John Alpha, had marveled at their strange new bodies, and then had been given a cargo van, the GPS coordinates of this bunker, and their new orders. They were the undead, ordered to die again. One of the Devlins brushed away the dirt from the crate, then opened it. He removed a layer of gray shock-absorbent foam and peered at the tiny black device encased in its center. He lifted the spherical thing from its sculpted bed and held it up to his brethren. It was slightly larger than a softball. One side was covered by four small buttons and a dozen dark LED lights. Red Mercury, he said. His voice had the solemn tone of a Good Friday sermon. Stay current, chided another Devlin. This one had been nepth-charged into the body of a woman. It was Red Mercury back in our time, back when it was the Ruskies. DARPA stole it, reverse-engineered it, gave it a new name. Low-yield nuclear device doesn't have the same cachet, the first Devlin said. Two megatons packed into a glorified shot put deserves a name worthy of its menace. Not Lindy. Red Mercury. The Devlin gingerly placed the bomb back into its foam cradle and resealed the crate. They then reviewed their orders for tomorrow's mission. At precisely 10.07 a.m., they would strike. As would 12 other squads of Devlins currently sitting in their underground bunkers across America, each armed with their own low-yield nuclear device. You've been listening to Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit a podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Thanks for listening. Please visit www.jchutchins.net for more information about this novel and about the author. Themed music generously provided by Cell Dweller. Please visit the band's website at celldweller.com and at myspace.com slash celldweller. Graphic elements for website art and album art for this podcast, generously created by 
Magic Torch. Please visit the company's website at magictorch.com. This recording and its contents are copyright 2006 J.C. Hutchins.